Coming this evening to the book of Joel and thinking together of responding to natural disasters. Now, 2024 is predicted to be another year of world natural disasters by scientists. According to the NASA Applied Science Disasters website, in the first weeks of 2024, there has already been reports of an oil spill in Trinidad and Tobago, earthquakes in Japan, flooding in the Marshall Islands, and forest fires in Chile. And one of the challenges which arise to us from such circumstances is how are the people in those countries to respond to that? And how are you and I to respond to these reports of natural disasters so readily available to us from right across the world? One obvious response is to ask, can these disasters be avoided in the future? Can new flooding defences be set up in the Marshall Islands to prevent this natural disaster happening again? And could I, pre- could I contribute funds to the setting up of those natural defences? Another thought can be, can we alleviate the suffering of these natural disasters? Could we send funds for food to be bought or can we offer our medical expertise in the city of Kiev or in the Gaza Strip to help the wounded and the needy at this time? That could be a response that you or I might have, might be capable of to this disaster in that part. But a further question that that we ask within the church is, Is there a biblical response set out for us which countries experiencing these disasters and you and I reading of these disasters and learning of them should have? The book of Joel is the key part in the whole of the Bible to responding to natural disasters. Perhaps for us it will become a more used book as we grasp its message and its guidance in living in this new year. Here is the situation of a a natural disaster. Here is a book which sets out for us how we can respond to a time of flooding, storm, earthquake, famine or pandemic. Now, the date of this book is discussed by scholars, as you'll see in your study Bibles, and I hope you'll be able to use your study Bibles assiduously over the coming weeks that we are studying through the Minor Prophets. The more help we can get in these Minor Prophets, the better. Good help, of course. Most scholars date it around 500 BC. Among the reasons supporting this date are, as we mentioned, there's no king of Israel or Judah mentioned in the title of this book, indicative perhaps of a post-exilic time when this book is written. There's no mention of Assyria or or Babylon or Egypt that we thought of in the book of Isaiah this morning so profusely set out in that book, mentioned in that book. Those are the indicators uh, that this book was written after the exile around 500 BC. There are similar phrases found in the books of Ezekiel, Amos, Zephaniah, and Obadiah to the book of Joel, 
And we could argue either way, but the other arguments are directing us that Joel came after them and quoted from them and used some of their ideas in his writings. And so we're to think of Joel coming around 500 BC. The northern kingdom has gone into exile in 722 BC. The southern kingdom has gone into exile in 586 BC. The return from exile has happened in 538 BC under Cyrus the Persian. The temple has been restored, rebuilt in 515 BC. The people, we learn from the book of Joel, are living in the land once again. And so we're to date the book of Joel around 500 BC. While the date is perhaps uncertain, the occasion is very clear. A natural disaster in the time of this prophet. In the 6th century, probably Palestine. A devastating plague of locusts. And how devastating it is. Set out for us in that opening section that we read in chapter 1. In modern times, pesticides are reducing the threat from locusts in many countries. But even in Africa today, <coughs> locusts are devastating. Four types of locusts are mentioned in verse 4 and in other parts of the prophecy. Cutting, swarming, hopping, <coughs> stripping locusts. Are they identifying different species of locusts or are they identifying different stages of the devastation by the locusts? But it seems clear in chapter 1 that there's a swarm of locusts devastating the land. In one swarm, it's estimated there are 10 billion locusts. There are 1,000 in every one square foot. A swarm of locusts it's estimated can devour in one day what 40,000 people can eat in a lifetime. In 1958, Ethiopia lost 162,000 tons of grain to locusts. And so here is a time, a situation, a natural disaster. You see verse 10, the grain, the wine, the oil, destroyed, shriveled and gone and here's Joel standing in the presence in his own country this devastation all around him people weeping farmers unsure what to do, how to respond what reaction is there to be and here's God's servant speaking to the nation with light and truth and words from heaven speaking to them. And, and the timelessness of his prophecy means that across the centuries he's speaking to us too. Here's our guide. Here's the book to take up in a time of flooding and forest fires and earthquakes. Here's the biblical direction for us. How to respond in natural disaster. Main responses are, are set out for us here. We're to respond with homage, to respond with humility, and to respond with hope. To respond with homage, and this is chapter one, the whole of this chapter. 
The phrase, the day of the Lord, occurs five times in the book of Joel. It's common within the minor prophets. Hosea and Amos both ministered in the 8th century. And now Joel ministering in the 6th century. Yet the book of Joel is placed between Hosea and Amos who ministered 200 years before him. Why might this be? The answer most likely is that all three of them mention at the heart of their prophecy the day of the Lord. It's a day when God's presence, when his power is evident. He governs everything all the time. He orders all circumstances ceaselessly. But there are times when his power, his majesty, his anger or his love are very, very evident. And Joel describes this plague of locusts in the land as the day of the Lord. We might describe the good innings of a cricketer as being his day. It was his day. He couldn't miss a ball. He was hitting them out of the park. It was his day. And it's in that sense, his abilities, his power, his genius was evident in that moment. And so it is in that sense that this phrase is used, the day of the Lord. A time where the glory of God is evidence, where his abilities, his might, his power is very near and very clear. And so in verse 15, he uses it of this natural disaster. The day of the Lord is near. The day when destruction comes from the Almighty. How terrible that day will be. And he's asserting that God is over the circumstance. That he's in control. That the timing of the plague. That the duration of the plague. That the intensity of the plague. That everything about this plague is managed and controlled by God. And throughout this first chapter, there is this repeated emphasis on the people coming to this God, looking to this God, praying to this God. He's the source, He's above this natural disaster. And so in verse 14, we read Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. This is his day. This is his deed. This is his working. This is not chance. This is not something that's unfortunate. This is not something that's, that's bound by, by, by natural processes. There's something greater here. And we're to go to the source of this trouble. Verse 19. The people pray, Lord, help us. In verse 20, the psalmist has this wonderful Assertion, even the beasts of the field pant for you. All creation is looking to God. It's his day. It's his work. And so there's this homage that's to fill us. This recognition that this is in God's plan. That he is in control as Psalm 93 was asserting. And this emphasis on the day of the Lord by Hosea, by Joel, and by Amos, right at the start of the Minor Prophets, will continue through them. 
but it was revolutionary in his time. Because the people of, of Israel thought that, that God would never come to them in judgment. He might come to the, the pagan nations in judgment, but if he came to them, the day of the Lord would be a day of blessing. And sometimes the phrase, the day of the Lord, is used in that other way as a day of special blessing and salvation. But in this case, it's used of a day of special judgment. And they couldn't understand this. And Jeremiah and other prophets will, will wrestle with this misconception that the people had. They were God's people, they argued. They had the temple. God dwelt in a special way in the city of Jerusalem. There will never come to us a day of judgment. But Amos and Hosea and Joel fight against that misconception. And here this plague of locusts in the land of Israel is being described as the day of the Lord. Yes, your God, the one whom you're meant to worship and to follow, who dwells in a special way in Jerusalem, who has called you from Egypt and looked after you. He is coming near to you in this judgment. In line of scripture, we're to, to recognize that all things are under the control and power of God. The rain and the sun, the wind and the lightning, the sea and the sky. He governs and controls all things. Nothing is outside of his control, of his purpose, of his plan. And the natural disasters, we are to continue on with that recognition of God's lordship. He is ruling over all. We are to make an important distinction between the what and the why of natural disasters, aren't we? The what is that this is God's purpose, that his mighty hand is involved in this as the prophet is asserting right throughout this chapter. In other prophets, we, we hear this being asserted, Amos 4.13, the Lord is the one who shaped the mountains and stirs up the wind. Nahum 1 verse 3, his way is in the whirlwind and storm. Psalm 102, 25, he raised the stormy wind. We know the what of natural disasters. Joel, Amos, Nahum, Psalms is asserting this is within God's plan, God's way, God's purpose. But we don't always know the why of natural disasters. Why a young mother's bereaved. Why the destruction of many homes. Why the ruination of businesses. This was the problem that, that, that Job's friends came up against. They, they knew the what. The, the four of them were agreed that God was involved in Job's suffering and devastation and loss. The what was clear to them and it's always clear to us. But it was the why that they failed to understand. And that we often fail to understand because we are finite. Our minds are small. Our understanding is limited and God's mind is infinite. And we cannot put together all the reasons and purposes why devastation comes to a country or to our life. We clutch straws. 
We hear of someone being converted in connection with a young person dying. We hear of unbelievers being at the funeral and we long that they will hear and believe the word of God. We're trying to make connections between the, 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 the difficulty and the suffering and what God might be doing. But it's far beyond us. We can understand the storm in which Jonah was. The connection of not only what this was God's working, his bringing up the waves. We understand the what there and we also understand the why there. It was because of his disobedience and when he was thrown overboard, the storm ceased. But none of us, including Paul, understand the reason for the storm in his boat in Acts 27. Why was it shipwrecked? And, and people struggling to get to the land on broken pieces of the ship. There's no account of anyone being converted through that shipwreck. We understand the what of the storm. But we don't understand the why. And when we hear of natural disaster. We are to recognize the what. This is. This is the Lord here. It's in his plan. And he has an infinite reason for what's going on. So that will be, be one thing that we can write, write down and, and, and remember from chapter 1. The second is respond with humility. And this is moving us into chapter 2, the first half of this chapter, verses 1 to 17. And there's two aspects of this, this humility. One is fear and, and, in verses 1 to 11, and the second is repentance in verses 12 to 17. So, so the natural disaster, the locust, the flooding, the earthquake, the, the forest fire is there. Here's the second response is, is humility. See verse 1 of chapter 2. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. Now, I don't know if you studied the book of Joel recently, maybe in your Bible reading notes or, or going through uh, the, the, this book of the Bible in your, your chronological reading of the Bible. Uh, but verses 1 to 11 uh, is, is, is talked about and discussed. And, and the point being asked is, is this a literal army described here or are the attributes of an army being used to describe an army of locusts? So is it the same idea as in chapter 1 of, of the locusts and their devastation or have we moved on in chapter 2 verses 1 to 11 to a new description of an army of soldiers? That's one of the questions. The, the simple and ordinary reading, which is often the, the right one, is that it's an army of soldiers, and that's how we're going to take this. So here in verses 1 to 11, that there is described for us a devastating army, perhaps 
He has the Persians in mind, the, the world power of the time, coming to bring devastation. But what's more interesting is that verses 1 to 11 is all in the future tense. So it's not something that has happened. It's not something that is happening. But it's something that might happen. And the whole point is, look, Joel's saying, the army of locusts is devastating. But if you don't respond properly to God in this, something more devastating is going to come. The army of soldiers with their brutality, their ability to think, and their superior power, and cruelty, and violence, and depravity will be a far worse devastation than the locusts. And as we encounter natural disaster, what a thought that is. What a prayer for our nation and for the nations of Chile and the Marshall Islands. That they'll respond not only with homage, recognizing the kingship of God in their time of suffering and need, but also coming with that fear that we want to come to this God. Let something worse far worse, will come. The second way in which we respond with humility in verses 12 to 17 is with repentance. We read God saying in verse number 12, return to me with all your heart. In a time of natural disaster, some people turn from God. They, they, they look around at their, their bereavement. They look around at their loss of business. They look around at their loss of property and land and flocks. They turn away from God. But this is absolutely wrong response here. God is saying to this people whose land has been devastated by this swarm of locusts, come to me. Turn to me with all your heart. Come in repentance. The God of forgiveness and love and grace. Pharaoh responded, didn't he, in the very wrong way to the disasters that came to him, to the darkness, to the frogs, to the flies, to, to all those plagues that were brought on his land. He hardened his heart and moved away from God. But here Joel is saying that the proper response to natural disaster, however broken we are, However fragile our life becomes, is to come again to God, to this God, and we acknowledge as King and Lord over all. In Psalm 29, there is that description of a storm moving through the land of, of Israel. And all kinds of, of, of natural events are happening. The trees are being blown over and, and people are, are petrified. But at the end of the psalm, we read these words, everyone speaks of his glory. There is that coming to God through the natural disaster that they've experienced. 
we, we are people who are prone to familiarity. We get used to things. The sun rises and falls every day. The wonders of the heavens are all around us. And sometimes they do not fill us with awe and delight and are drawing near to God. But one effect of natural disasters should be that it awakens us from our familiarity with the sovereign God and should draw us near to him in this humility of fear of something worse to come and of repentance of anything untoward in our life. No sins are mentioned in this section, verses 12 to 17, this call to repentance. Some argue that it's because their sins were obvious. Others argue it's because their, their sins were, were minimal. Others argue that, that this is to be a, a generic book set out for all nations in all times. And rather than narrow it down with specific sins, it's left general that you and I today can take up this book. Does we hear... <coughs> Of the forest fires in Chile and the flooding in the Marshall Islands. We'll reflect on this and, and we will recognize that this is God and His absolute power. And we will come before Him. We will come before Him with fear and repentance in our life. Thirdly, there is to be hope. We come with homage, we come with humility, and then we come with hope. Chapter 2, verse 18 moves us into the second part of the book. And here is the, the light and, and, and the joy and the, the attractiveness of the blessing of God set out for us here. As people come before him in that reverence, as people come before him in that, that repentance, verse 18 says, Then... The Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. As we come before God in times of natural disaster and as nations using the book of Joel come before him with that homage and humility, here is a wonderful enticement for us and promise for us of blessings from God. There are three types of blessings that are set out for us in these verses. Material blessings, first of all, in verses 18 to 27. God promises that he will give back what they had lost in that locust devastation. In verse number 25, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. In verse 19, he says, he will send them grain and wine and oil and you will be satisfied. In verse 24, he says, the threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. Here are material blessings that God promises his people. We thank God for everything, don't we? We trust God for everything. We look to God for restoration, for help in every level. And here is a passage, a promise, as we come in repentance before him. 
Spiritual blessings then in verses number 28 to 32. God not only will restore what was taken away. Goes beyond that. This is our God. What an inducement for us to come before him in repentance. He promises in in those verses we've mentioned to verse 27 that the grain and the oil and, and all that he removed by the locusts from them will be restored. But he goes beyond that. He promises spiritual blessings to this repentant people in verse at number 28 and, and 29, twice he says, I will pour out my spirit. <coughs> Not only will he restore what he had taken away materially, but he will give them wonderful spiritual blessings. It was the desire of Moses, you remember, in Numbers chapter 12, that they would... Uh, be so blessed that all the people of Israel would receive the Holy Spirit to know God's will and to proclaim his truth. And what Moses prayed for then will be fulfilled by God and was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. What a message to that people, devastated, not knowing which way to turn, wondering how they can survive. God is saying, I will bless you materially. I will bless you spiritually with blessings that you have never even imagined. And then thirdly, he promises eternal blessings in the third chapter. This chapter, long, complex, detailed, set in the the language and, and geography of the time, looks beyond the sixth century. Looks beyond the New Testament era, which is so clearly in view in verses 28 to 32. And it looks beyond this world to the blessings and the glory of heaven. And shouldn't this be one of the the responses of our hearts to natural disaster as we see properties taken away, as we see what was powerful and strong and depended on, ripped from the hands of those who'd built it up and and, and trusted in it. That this world is passing. That natural disasters are showing us the temporariness of all things in this life. And we're to look beyond this world as Joel points the people then and points us now to those everlasting blessings of heaven. Here's another day of the Lord mentioned in verse number 14 of chapter 3. The day of the Lord is near. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. Here's another day of the Lord, another time when God's attributes and powers will be so evident and clearly seen when he comes again to judge all the nations of the earth who are gathered before him. Verse number 12. There I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Here before us in this chapter is the last day. The day of judgment. The day of reckoning. The day when all other things will be set aside and we will stand before the all-glorious God. And what Joel emphasizes to us is that those who have repented to this God, And have received those spiritual blessings of the the Holy Spirit poured out upon them. Will enter into the glorious eternal blessings. 
of the new Jerusalem, of the heavenly land. This is how we must understand verse number 20, isn't it? Judah shall be inhabited forever. And Jerusalem to all generations. This is going far beyond any earthly city. This is taking us up into those eternal ages of dwelling in the new heavens and the heavenly Jerusalem. Verse number 21 at the end. The Lord dwells in Zion. Revelation 21 uses this terminology, doesn't it? And perhaps has this part of Joel in mind as it describes the new heavens and the new earth in chapter 21. I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. He will dwell with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The same terminology used here at the end of Joel is used to describe heaven in Revelation 21. Sometime, boys and girls, uh, we will organize the young people to pray, play the game, trading up. And it's a, it's, a, it's a great game. And we'll go out into the, the community and maybe start off with a bin, just a, an old bin for, from the house. And, and the idea of this game, trading up, is that you go along to a house and you say, I've got this bin here. Can you give me something better than this bin? And people are kind and generous and thoughtful. They go into their garage, they'll, they'll rummage about, and they'll maybe come out with a chair and give you a chair. And we'll go off with a chair and we'll go to the next house and say, you know, I'm from the church, we're, we're playing this game, trading up. Have you got anything better than a chair? And they'll go round to their back garden and they'll come out with a bike. They'll give you a bike. And then you go along to the, the next house and you, you trade up and maybe end up with a car. Trading up is, is a really interesting and fascinating game. And here's the book of Joel. And it's saying to us, it's saying to us, you come with your devastated life to God. The people had nothing. The people were broken. The people were impoverished. The locusts had taken everything from their farms, from their storehouses, from their fields. They had absolutely nothing. God said, you come to me with that. Come to me in repentance. Come to me in remorse. Come to me in faith. Come to me in love. Come trusting me. Come desiring me. Come giving your life to me. And I will bless you. I will give you blessings that you have never imagined. And when this temporal life is past, I will bring you into my very city. The heavenly Jerusalem forever. How are we to respond to natural disasters? We're to respond with honor. This is your day, God. This is you. This is you. This is your power. This is how great you are. We're to respond with humility. Lord, we deserve much worse. You could bring much worse on us. We come to you. With whatever sins we can find in our life, we come with humility to you. Then coming with that humility, we come with hope in your grace and abundant love to bless us far beyond what we can ever think. The book of Joel 
It's in two parts. The dark part and the bright part. And we move from the dark part into the bright part by repentance and trust in Jesus. Boys and girls, adults, what part are you in? You still in the dark part, under judgment? Or have you moved into the bright part of blessing and of grace?